My desire tonight is for us, um, as we work through the book of Leviticus, to see that it is not a strange book, um, that it is not something that, that should be intimidating, uh, that there is much that we, even as the church, can glean from Leviticus and ways that we can grow from knowing Leviticus uh, as we understand it rightly for what it meant for Israel and even how it applies to the church. So hopefully all of you uh, received one of these uh, kind of outlines to follow along tonight and, and blanks to fill in there. And uh, if you didn't, I think there's some extras on the table uh, in the back of the worship center. Leviticus is, is in many ways, um, a book about laws. And uh, the word Leviticus doesn't mean laws. It, it just has to refer to the tribe of Levi, those who would serve as uh, priests among the people of Israel. Leviticus literally means things of the Levites, okay? So that's what we're reading about here in Leviticus. Now, now Leviticus is not the only book of the Old Testament that uh, tells the Levites, the priests, what they are to do and how they are to perform their duties. Some of that spills over into Numbers, uh, and, uh, and some of it was referred to even in Leviticus, where we were just a, a few short months ago. Uh, but Leviticus, uh, did I say Leviticus? Exodus, Exodus. Much of it is referred to in Exodus, um, where we were a few months ago. Uh, but Le- Leviticus focuses primarily on, on much of what the priests are supposed to do. And so because we don't have priests like they had in the Old Testament, sometimes we're confused by this and why it means anything at all for the church and how to apply anything from Leviticus to the life uh, of the Christian church here today um, now that we have seen and, and, and tasted God's redemption in Christ. And so as we uh, look through this book, Lord willing, uh, he will give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand what it is that he has to say to us, even in the book of Leviticus. Let me pray for our time, and then we'll enter into God's word. Our Father, we we do recognize tonight that the Bible is your holy word to us. It is inerrant, it is infallible, inspired by the Holy Spirit, written by human authors. God, it is your word to us. It is how you have chosen to communicate in human language to your creation, your, uh, that we, uh, human beings that, that have been made in your image, in, in your likeness to live lives of love and worship of you. God, all 66 of these books in this library we call the Bible uh, are inspired by your Holy Spirit. And all of them are authoritative for the church. And all of them are good for teaching and reproof and correction and training in godliness. And so, Lord, we admit that in our, our human frailty and, and even in our <clears throat> position in history, sometimes it's hard for us to connect uh, to your word. Uh, but, Lord, we know that it's still authoritative and it's still inspired and it's still to us and for us. And so, uh, as we embark upon um, what some may think to be uh, challenging territory in the book of Leviticus, help us, God, to see uh, your grace, your mercy your holiness, your justice, uh, your, your goodness to all people, uh, finding its, its climax in Christ on the cross in our place. Help us to see that in Leviticus tonight. God, you be glorified. Edify your church as we study your word and pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help us to do it in spirit and in truth. These things we ask in the name of Jesus, our Savior, that lamb slain for us, uh, risen and ascended and at the right hand of the Father. Amen. So you have your hand out there. Let's deal with some of the uh, perfunctory, sundry items 
regarding to the background of Leviticus. The author of Leviticus, same as Genesis and Exodus and also Numbers and Deuteronomy, is Moses, right? That leader of Israel who God chose to work through to lead the Israelites out of their slavery in Egypt. Uh, The book of Leviticus is part of the Pentateuch or Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Uh, Torah is the Hebrew word meaning law or instruction. Pentateuch is a word meaning five five book or five part book. Penta meaning five, tuk meaning work. And Leviticus is right in the middle of that. Uh, It was written by Moses, likely during the wilderness period. Uh, They're wandering in the wilderness in their rebellion before God would lead them into the promised land sometime between uh, 1400 and 1200 years BC, depending on how you date the Exodus. If I were to summarize Leviticus in just a few short sentences, I would do it this way. Leviticus, being the third and central book of the Torah, uh, is composed largely of ceremonial law and instruction. Leviticus serves as an insight into God's holiness and the way that his chosen people, Israel, are to live as a holy people, belonging to a holy God in a world that is marked and marred by sin. Leviticus is simultaneously demonstrating the deadliness of sin and God's gracious gift of a way uh, of atoning for sin, of receiving forgiveness for sin. So we see both of those things in Leviticus. There are three major themes, or others as well, but three that we're going to hit on tonight. In the book of Leviticus, these are in your guide. First, God is holy. That word holy comes from the Hebrew word meaning kadosh, which just means set apart, different, distinct, not like other things. God's people are, as a result, distinct and should also be holy. Third, God's people are sinful and need redemption. These are the three themes that we're going to see throughout this book. Now, as we work through the series of uh, uh, called Woven and, and Seeing Christ in All of Scripture, we're also looking at each individual book of the Bible in uh, terms of its uh, location and the scope of redemption history. Redemption history is what God has been doing from the creation of the universe uh, all the way up until uh, the end of time when Christ will return to judge all people living and dead. And we have uh, broken down the scope of redemption history into four major acts. Uh, Act 1, creation. Act 2, the fall. Act 3, redemption. Act 4, consummation. And so if you have a pen or a pencil with you uh, in your guide, just go ahead and circle all together um, the word fall, that little arrow in the middle, and redemption. Because that's kind of what Leviticus covers, right? It's showing that we are fallen human beings, that Israel is fallen. um, And it's showing them that they need to be redeemed. And it's giving them uh, pointers to redemption and how they will ultimately be redeemed. As we read Leviticus, it helps us to understand what the genre of Leviticus is. Genre just is a fancy word for type of literature, okay? Leviticus is largely divine oracle inserted within historical narrative. So by divine oracle, I mean that there are large sections in Leviticus of words and instruction from God to Israel through Moses. But the whole of the divine oracle sections are inserted within the broader historical narrative of the Pentateuch. Genesis through Deuteronomy is one story about how Israel came to be and came to be in the promised land. And Leviticus sits right in the middle of that story. In this sense, Leviticus is then instructive for Israel. It tells them what to do. It tells them how to live. But it's also a formative part of Israel's identity in history. Leviticus tells them what kind of people they are to be. Because this text is about God's character and holy living, there are important implications for the people of God today, for the church. And so you, in your own time, which I know you're very eager to do, when you read Leviticus on your own, and you're seeking to understand it better, ask yourself the following questions, okay? One, what is this text telling me about God and His character? 
We ask that same question in Genesis uh, and also in, in Exodus. Secondly, what does this text reveal to me about myself? Where do I see me in Leviticus? And I'm just going to give you a little bit of a spoiler. You're not going to see much of yourself in the character of the holiness of God in Leviticus, okay? Amen. <laughs> amen. I can't believe I got an amen. You're going to see yourself as a dirty, rotten sinner as you read Leviticus. Amen, Pastor. Go and preach it. Oh, mercy. Third, ask yourself this question. Am I walking in holiness as a follower of Christ? Leviticus, time and time again, is going to point to our unholiness and our need for a Savior. And that even in Christ, we know that we are made positionally holy, positionally righteous before God. But yet in these fallen bodies, we are still struggling with holiness. And so we need, uh, need to and can use Leviticus as a reminder uh, uh, to walk in holiness and to even hold it up as a mirror to our lives in many ways. Leviticus begins where Exodus left off. In fact, we could not even uh, divide the books between Genesis and Deuteronomy, and the whole five books would flow almost seamlessly together. Uh, but it starts where, where, where uh, Exodus left off. The Lord called Moses, Leviticus 1.1, and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, right, so on and so forth. And he get into talking about offerings and that sort of thing. As a continuation of, of Exodus, what we have here is the word of God to Moses or for Israel through Moses that takes place in that tabernacle, the tent of meeting, the, that special tent that God instructed Israel, the nation, to, uh, to construct as a place where they would worship and offer sacrifices and uh, where God would meet with his people, where they would worship him rightly. And it is there in that place of worship that God reveals to Moses all that is in Leviticus. If I were to sum up Leviticus in just one verse and you're saying, Pastor, I wish you would. I would do it in Leviticus 11, 44, uh, 11, 44 and 45. Excuse me. This is what the Lord says. I am the Lord, your God. Consecrate, consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground, for I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. A reminder of what has just happened in Exodus to be your God. You shall, therefore, be holy, for I am holy. That word holy, as we said before, means set apart, means chosen for a special purpose. God himself is set apart from his creation because he is sovereignly perfect in every way. And in love, he has chosen Israel to be his people through whom he will bless the world, as we saw the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 and also in Genesis 17. But Israel is not a perfect people. We don't have to go far to see that. We can, we can look at Moses, their chosen leader in Exodus chapter 2. He's a murderer. He kills an Egyptian and tries to hide it, right? Hide the body in the sand, trying to flee from his crimes. Israel is not a perfect people and neither is their leader. And so as God has called his people Israel to be his people, as he's freed them from slavery to worship him, to follow him, to bless the world, before he brings them into a land of their own, he addresses in very specific terms his relationship with them. This is how you relate to me and this is how I will relate to you, God is saying in Leviticus. And so in six different ways, we see that relationship kind of come to the fore in Leviticus and in, and in different sort of movements throughout the book. For the first movement is this. Because sin exists, sacrifice is necessary. 
Because sin exists, sacrifice is necessary. And this we see in chapters 1 through 7 of Leviticus. There in those chapters, we have a summary of all the different kinds of sacrifices that the people of Israel are to bring. There are all kinds of sacrifices. Grain sacrifices, peace sacrifices, those are peace offerings, excuse me, burnt offerings. But among all of these, the most crucial, the most critical of offerings uh, in the life of Israel will be the sin offering or the guilt offering. The sin offering exists not primarily for sins that people commit intentionally, but sins that people commit unintentionally. Look at Leviticus chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel saying, If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commands, those he's speaking of the ones that he's given there in Exodus, about things not to be done, and he does any one of them. If it is one of the anointed priests, he shall bring a bull. Verse 13, if it's the whole congregation, they shall bring a, um, a bull from the herd to offer as an offering. If it's a leader who sins unintentionally, he's supposed to bring a goat without blemish. If it's one of the common people who sins unintentionally, he's to bring a goat without blemish to offer uh, for, the, for the atonement for his sins. Isn't it interesting that when God addresses sins for the first time in Leviticus and the need for atonement, he doesn't address intentional sins. He dresses the unintentional sins. It's just a pointing to the, to the fact that we all sin without meaning to, because that's just who we are in our nature, right? Now, all of our sin is willfully done, but even if we don't necessarily intend to do it, our heart leads us to sin. And so whether it's an intentional sin or an unintentional sin, right, we need forgiveness from God. And God is highlighting that here in this place. Whether sin is unintentional or intentional, when sin is realized, the the Uh, Response is to be immediate confession, subsequent repentance of that sin, and sacrifice for atonement. Church, are we so quick to do the same? When we recognize sin in our lives, are we so quick to confess that sin? Even as we uh, heard from Brian this morning from 2 Samuel and David, not wanting to confess his sin when he knew it, but wanting to cover it up, right? Do we want to confess our sin or do we want to hide it? Do we want to walk in repentance or do we want to walk in in secret rebellion against God? How do we respond to sin? When any person sinned in Israel, here in Leviticus, we're told that they're to bring an animal to sacrifice. And from Leviticus 1.1 and 1.2, we see that that animal is to be from a person's own possession, indicating that there's a closeness of the sinner to the animal who will die for his sins. Or in this sense, the sacrifice for the sinner, it's got to mean something. It must mean something. Most of these animals are animals that would have brought profit to the person uh, or some sort of livelihood, would have served as meat, sustenance for the family. Maybe there's a goat or a, ra- uh, a goat that would provide milk uh, for drinking or milk that you could turn into cheese or whatever it else you, is that you do with goats and uh, goat's milk and, uh, or, a, or, or a bull from among the herd of the people, right? There are various sorts of animals that are offered, some uh, specified for those that are um, uh, of a special role in Israel. So priests, uh, or if it's a sin of the whole people of Israel, they're to bring uh, a bull from among the herd, a costly animal. Uh, If it's an individual or a a common common person or just a leader from among them, they're they're to bring just a goat, uh, a less pricey animal, but one from their own herd. So bulls, goats, sheep being offered on the altar. But for those who are poor, God even makes concession just out of his grace for them and mercy to them. If you're poor and you don't have a goat or a sheep or a bull to offer, you can bring two doves, which is very cheap. Or you could even bring flour. If you can't even afford doves, you can bring an offering of flour for sacrifice uh, for your sins. And when that offering is brought, the sinning group or the sinning individual are to then lay their hands on the head of the animal as a symbol of transference of their sin 
to the animal, right? So not that the animal literally takes their sin, but as a symbol of their sin passing from them to the animal. They lay their hands on that animal, confess their sins, and then they kill the animal themselves. After killing the animal, they bring it into the, um, into the tabernacle, into that um, uh, front area, the sort of the courtyard area, and the priest will take it, and the priest will then drain the blood of the animal and pour that blood, smear that blood on the altar there in the courtyard of the tabernacle for the atonement of that sinning party to pay for their sins, for their sins to be wiped away. Notice this, that it is in the death of the animal and the shedding of its blood in the place of a sinful person that provides atonement. That word atonement comes from the archaic term at one That means at peace, right? To be justified with God. It comes at the death of another living being. Leviticus chapter 17 verse 11 tells us why. God says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it, I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore, I've said to the people of Israel, no person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. What we can know from all of this is that in Leviticus, and just in the sacrificial system itself, sin is dirty, bloody, stinky, deadly business. Consider the life of the the daily life of the priest in uh, Leviticus or the priests who served in Leviticus. Day after day after day, people of Israel are coming in with animals to kill and to have their blood drained and have the blood smeared on the altar for the uh, atonement, for the purification, for the forgiveness of their sins. Every time someone recognizes their sin, they are to bring an animal to sacrifice for it. Can, uh, brothers and sisters, how many times did you sin this last week? If you had to bring an animal for every time you sinned last week, would you ever get anything done? Right? That's how busy the priests are in Leviticus. Their daily work, day in and day out, is draining the blood of animals, smearing it on an altar. Next, draining the blood of an animal, smearing it on an altar. Next, all day long. And I've never field dressed a, a deer or an elk or anything like that, uh, been hunting. But from what I understand, it is dirty, bloody, stinky, deadly business. When blood is spilled in, in great portions, there is a, a smell to it. And a, an acrid sort of metallic, I, don't, I can't even, I don't even know how to describe it, sort of smell. And that was the daily experience of the priests in Leviticus. And the daily experience of the people of Israel in their wandering, in their daily life in Jerusalem. Even when they would make it to the, to the, to the, uh, to the Holy Land, right? That's still their life. One thing we, we should see from these first chapters of Leviticus is the great offense of sin before a holy God. It's on display there in Leviticus. Sin is offensive to a holy God. But also, also, see the grace of God to Israel in providing a means for atonement. God to Adam and Eve in the garden, right? You can eat from any tree that you want to eat from, just not this one tree, right? Because in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Even uh, Romans chapter 6, Paul tells us the wages of sin is death, right? What we deserve for our sin is death. What Israel deserved for their sin was instant and immediate death. Yet God in his grace gives them a way to have their sins atoned for by someone else, something else. Even in Genesis, after Adam and Eve fall and they sin, they recognize their nakedness. They try to hide it with fig leaves. God sees them and he sees through their attempt to hide their sin. He addresses their sin. He delivers a curse for sin. And then what does he do? He, he takes 
animal skins and covers Adam and Eve with animal skins, a better covering than the fig leaves they tried to make for themselves. Even in Genesis, there is substitutionary atonement for sins. And the same thing's happening in Leviticus, and the same thing will happen for all people in Christ on the cross, where a perfect substitute takes our place uh, for the penalty due to us for our sins before a holy God. Because sin exists, sacrifice is necessary. But secondly, because sin separates man from God, we see that a mediator is needed. In chapters 8 through 10, we have the discussion of the priests and their uh, uh, consecration and what they are to do in Israel. Going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, from then on, it is clear that the chief effect of sin is separation from God. Adam and Eve sin, they get kicked out of the garden, right? Separation. Since God and mankind then are separated by sin, there must be, for them to have any relationship, a mediator. Someone to speak to the people for God and someone to be a representative of the people to God. Someone to stand in the gap, to stand in the middle. And the mediators between God and Israel in the Old Testament were the priests, the Levites. It was only these these men from the tribe of Levi that the priests would come and would serve. And as the priestly tribe, the Levites did not get a land allotment among the other tribes uh, in Israel when they arrived to the promised land. Okay? They didn't get a, 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 a county for themselves. Instead, they occupied what were called sanctuary cities throughout the various tribal lands in Israel. And uh, because they didn't have land to till and soil to you know, plant uh, things in and... and um, land to grow cattle uh, or to, to raise cattle and other things on, they received their uh, daily allotment of food from the sacrifices that people would bring. So from the sin sacrificed, uh, it, it would, uh, the animal would be slaughtered and then the meat would be cooked and then uh, the person would have their sins atoned for and God in his providence would allow the priests to eat of the, uh, the goat or the sheep or the flour or whatever it was brought uh, for the sin offering there. And so in that way, God uh, provides for the priests But at the ordination of Aaron and his sons, it's interesting to see in Leviticus chapter 8 that their first act is to offer a sin offering to the Lord for their own atonement. These priests who are called by God to be mediators to the people, those that speak to the people for God, those that speak to God for the people, even they themselves are not immune from sin. Even they need sacrifice to atone for their sins. And while they're not immune to sin, They are called by God to exemplify for the people hearts of repentance and holiness to to God, right? They they are to be examples of what each and and every individual Israelite is to, how they're to live their lives, how they're to walk before the Lord. And in really dramatic portions, so there's not much narrative in Leviticus, but there is one scene that I think is certainly worth our attention. In Leviticus chapter 10, just after Aaron and his sons have been consecrated for the priesthood, we read this really tragic event. Now, uh, it's, as we read it now, uh, we, we might read it in the course of Leviticus and laugh a little bit because it's kind of funny, but it's also really tragic. So at the end of Leviticus 9, Aaron and his sons are all consecrated for the priesthood. It's ordination day. Then on day one, the next day, we read this, Leviticus chapter 10. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said among those who are near me. I will be sanctified, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. So, (laughs) ordination day, first day on the job, two out of the three priests are dead. 
Why? Because they, authorized unauth- or they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. And we don't know what the unauthorized fire was. All we know is that they offered something which the Lord had not commanded them. Why is God so harsh with Nadab and Abihu? It's the first day on the job and, and they're dead? Seriously? I think the answer lies in the job description of the priests, which we read in Leviticus chapter 10, verses 10 and 11, just a few verses later. God says to uh, Aaron regarding the priests, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the clean and the unclean, and you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. So even as Aaron and his sons had instruction from the Lord previously, the day before, Nadab and Abihu, on the first day of work, disobey and offer fire to the Lord in a manner that he did not specify. And because priests are called to exemplify holiness for the people, they're called to distinguish between what is holy and what is unholy. They're to be examples uh, and teachers for the community as to how to worship God rightly. God then does not tolerate disobedience in his prescribed worship, especially and even among the priests. Notice the, the teaching role of the priests, right? You are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. If Nadab and Abihu consecrated, ordained priests on the first day on the job can't do what the Lord instructed, does it show that they've actually paid attention to what the Lord has instructed? And if they've not paid attention to what the Lord has instructed, how can they ever hope to teach it to the people of Israel? Why is God so harsh? Because he's holy. Because he requires holiness for those that he has called. And while we in the church hold to the what we call the doctrine of the priesthood of the believer. That is that every person who knows God through faith in Christ has trusted their their life and their salvation to Jesus, his death in their place, his resurrection from the dead. Not a one of us needs someone, another human being, to take us to God, to be a representative of us um, to God or the other way around. We have Christ, the perfect God-man, who has done that for us. So while we hold to the doctrine of the priesthood of the believer... God does still, even in the church today, call leaders to teach and to lead his people. 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, 1 Peter 5, all demonstrate similar expectations for leaders in the church. Expectations similar to that of the priests, that they are to exemplify the kind of life that God is calling all of his people to, all believers to. The priests in the Old Testament were not held to a higher standard of holiness than the people of Israel. They weren't. You read through all Leviticus, right? All the, basically all the laws that apply to Israel also apply to the priests. But they were expected to exemplify the common standard of holiness for all the people. Not held to a higher standard, but they are called to exemplify that standard. In the same way, God's qualifications for pastors, elders, overseers, words used synonymously for what we call pastors today in the, in the New Testament. Pastors do not... Uh, God's qualifications for pastors do not create a higher standard of purity or a higher standard of living for pastors over non-pastors. But instead, what he's doing in 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, 1 Peter 5, is God is calling pastors to be consistent, godly examples for the flock of God among them. Those that God has called uh, him or them to lead. So, word of caution for two groups of people. One, uh, for pastors, those of us that serve in this capacity, and uh, young men, those of you that uh, God may be calling to serve as a pastor. Do not use this understanding of God's call for us to exemplify holiness um, and knowing that, that we do not have a higher standard of holiness or a higher standard of purity than the common believer. Don't use that as a license for sin. 
knowing that God is not calling you to be any more holy than anybody else, don't use that as a license to be unholy. Instead, on the other side, use it as encouragement to walk in holiness and to exemplify holiness and purity and Christ-likeness to the people that God has called you to lead. Now, church, a word of caution and a word of encouragement. Knowing that pastors are called to exemplify holiness and, and a heart for God and wanting to follow after God in purity. Um, don't hold your pastors to untenable standards of holiness and purity that, that no human person can ever hope to attain. God has, if God wanted Christ to pastor every single local church, he would have left him here to do it. But instead, he has called and redeemed sinful men to do it. Okay? Pastors are fallen. Okay? We are flawed human beings. We will make mistakes. The job of the church is to recognize that, that a pastor, though, who, even though he makes mistakes, is he, is he one who is quick to repent, quick to confess his sin and turn away from it and walk in holiness? Does he receive correction about things uh, in, in the right way with a heart of humility, wanting to follow God? Is he exemplifying that kind of life for the flock? So don't hold him to a standard that God hasn't held him to. Uh, but on the other side... Uh, of that. Um, uh, Don't hold yourself to a lower standard than what God has called all Christians to. Knowing that God has called pastors to exemplify the faith, don't think that you are off the hook as a believer. God has called you to the same standard of holiness and uh, and purity and Christ-likeness. So strive for that. Pursue that, right? And, And encourage pastors that lead you in that well. Pray for God to protect the pastors that are leading and exemplifying that sort of life, that they might continue to do it to encourage the church to walk in that way together, right? So pastors, we don't get to use this as an excuse to sin. Church, you don't get to use this as an excuse to sin. What this is is encouragement to all of us to walk in holiness and impurity because of the seriousness of, of what God has called pastors to and because of what God has called all believers to uh, in their faith in Christ. So because sin separates man from God, a mediator is needed. And this ultimately leads to a very special day in in the Israelite calendar, a day called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. We see instructions for the Day of Atonement in Leviticus chapter 16. This is perhaps the most important part of the book of Leviticus and, and composes what I think is the theological center of the book of Leviticus. The Day of Atonement in Hebrew, Yom Kippur. Now you know what Yom Kippur is, okay? So when you're looking at your month-by-month calendar and you see Yom Kippur pop up, you know that's the Day of Atonement, okay? You learned something. The Day of Atonement was the one day of the year in Israel when all of the sins of the people of Israel for the previous year were atoned for by the high priest. Whether they had been confessed and repented yet or not, this was a day for uh, atonement for the whole people of Israel. The first Yom Kippur, the first day of atonement, happened when uh, the day after Aaron's sons died uh, because of their unholiness in the temple. Look at Leviticus chapter 16, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your, uh, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place. That is the, what we call the Holy of Holies, the, the innermost room of the tabernacle where the Ark of the Covenant was. Don't come into the holy place inside the veil at any time before the mercy seat that is on the Ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. The mercy seat is the lid of the uh, Ark of the Covenant. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram 
for a burnt offering. And he goes on. The first Yom Kippur, the first day of atonement, happened the day after two of the three ordained priests had failed in their job. On this day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, year after year in Israel, several things would happen. First, the high priest would offer atonement for himself. He would take a bull and a ram and he would offer uh, a burnt offering and a sin offering for himself to make atonement for his own sins. And then he would take two goats. One goat they would, he would kill and slaughter for the sins of the people in the same manner that uh, an individual would bring uh, a, a sin sacrifice regularly throughout the year in Israel. He would take the blood of the bull for himself and he'd take the blood of the goat for the people and he would go into the Holy of Holies, that one room that remains vacant, vacant for 364 days out of the year, but one. And he would take that blood and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat. He would pour it out on top of the Ark of the Covenant. It's interesting, this is the only time of the year that this room is ever occupied by anybody. So he'd take the bull, he'd take that first of the two goats, and he'd offer them as sin sacrifice for himself and for the people. And then he would go out and he'd take that second goat, and he would lay hands on the second goat. And this is what he would do. Leviticus chapter 16, verses 20 and following. When he's made an end of the atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay uh, both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. He takes the live goat puts his hands on it and confesses aloud over the goat all of the sins, transgressions, and iniquities of the people for the past year. This is a long prayer service. Really long prayer service. He's confessing all of the sins of Israel on this one goat. And then he hands it over to a man who has been prepared for the task. And the man takes the goat out into the wilderness, you know, smacks it on the behind, sends it running off. And that goat, which is called the scapegoat, takes all of the iniquity, all of the sins of the people far away from the camp. A symbol of their sin being far removed from them by God and his grace and his mercy through the atonement. Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, was an incredibly weighty day in Israel in which the sins of the whole people were corporately confessed, corporately paid for, and atoned. What a great day. It's a day of celebration. It's a day of liberty, liberty from sin, liberty from our greatest oppressor. And God has graced Israel with a day in their calendar here in the Old Testament to revel in God's grace uh, to them. Ultimately, this points us to in the New Testament, to Jesus and to our need for a permanent sacrifice for sin. As long as the temple endured, sacrifices were offered day after day, year after year, decade after decade. The people's sins were never perfectly atoned for. They always had to provide a sacrifice. Even if you went sinless for a whole year, yeah, right, you still have to be part of the corporate sacrifice on Yom Kippur for the, all the people uh, of Israel, right? Sacrifice never ends. And we said before, sin is dirty, stinky, bloody, deadly business. So the dirty, stinky, bloody mess never ends until Christ, until the perfect sacrifice is given. Moving back a little bit in Leviticus, going back to the job of the priests, now that their sins have been atoned for and the sins of the people have been atoned for, we see in chapters 11 through 15 
this interplay between clean and unclean, or distinguishing between clean and unclean, which I think have very close ties, if not inextricable ties, to the visible effects of sin. Now, cleanliness in the Old Testament is not primarily about hygiene. It's not about whether or not your armpits stink. Uh, Instead, it's rather about the constantly visible effects of sin. And so we see cleanliness laws then covering all sorts of things in Leviticus. In Leviticus 11, we see cleanliness uh, laws uh, covering the issue of dietary restrictions, right? You can eat these kinds of animals and these kinds of things. You can't eat these kinds of things. And so though God had given in Genesis all the plants of the earth for food, and in uh, Genesis 9, after the flood, uh, when the waters... Uh, subside. God gives even all flesh for food to Noah and to his, his family and offspring. He calls his people Israel, as his people, his holy distinct people, to further distinguish, to further separate themselves from the world, even by what they eat. So that the world might, when they see Israel and the things they eat and the things that they don't eat, know that these are special people. There's something different about them. Now, there are all sorts of theories about what makes a certain animal or certain food clean or unclean. And many of these theories are competing with one another. Um, but one thing is common amongst all of the theories, that, that primarily the purpose of the cleanliness code for dietary restrictions, like this kosher code, um, it just has to do with making Israel a distinct people just by what they eat. But then we see also cleanliness laws covering things in Leviticus 12, like postpartum women. Those women who have just given birth to a child. Women who have just given birth, uh, whether a boy or a girl, uh, for a period of time are considered unclean. And after a period uh, of time, their uh, uncleanliness passes and they're to, you know, ceremonially wash themselves and they make uh, sacrifice in the tabernacle and they're declared clean and they can enter back into the corporate worship of the people. Now, this is not to say these cleanliness laws regarding postpartum women and and women who are in the middle of their menstrual cycle, these are not laws that are indicating that women are in any way inferior to men in Israel. That's not what this is all about. Instead, I think what it's pointing to is the fact that the presence of blood, both in menstruation and in childbirth, is a reminder of two things. One, the curse of Genesis 3 and pain for childbirth for the woman. Remember, that's part of the curse to the woman. You'll have pain in childbirth. And, and the blood that comes with uh, uh, giving birth to a child is a reminder of that curse. But also, remember as we saw in Leviticus 17, blood is God's sign of life. And spilled blood is a sign of life leaving the body. That's why when you bring a sacrifice, you spill all of its blood. So all of its life is given for your sins. When blood leaves the body of a woman, it's, it's not a, necessarily a bad thing. It's just part of uh, creation and, and the curse of sin. It's not because she is sinful, but it's because blood being spilled is a, is a visible effect of sin upon her. Right? It's, a, it's a sign of the curse. It's a reminder of the curse of pain and childbirth. The curse which comes as a result of sin. The same thing. Uh, that occurs during her, her menstrual cycle. So it's not that women are inferior to men, but just as a part of the life that women live, there is constantly or uh, 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 regularly upon them the signs of the curse of sin. And so when the sign of sin is visible upon you in a physical way, right, you're unclean. You're to distinguish yourself uh, uh, from the people of Israel. Why? Because God is holy and he doesn't tolerate even the sign of sin in his presence, right? Leviticus 13, and maybe this will help to illustrate that a little bit better. In Leviticus 13, we have all these laws about skin diseases called leprosy. Leprosy is just sort of a collective term that referred to all sorts of skin diseases. Could be the kind of leprosy where your nose and your fingers fall off, or it could just be like a really bad rash. 
All sickness in the Old Testament, and even today, is a result of the fall, right? It was a result of Adam and Eve's original sin. Invisible blemishes, whether they're infectious skin diseases or just a really bad rash, are reminders of the brokenness of the world around us. Similar with the, with the flow of blood that comes with childbirth, childbirth and, uh, and monthly menstruation in, in women. So sickness and sin, those things that are visible, are, are reminders of the brokenness of the world, evidence of the fall that affects uh, all of the world. And when the sign of the effects of sin is visibly upon you, you are unclean. You can't worship in the temple. You can't worship a holy God in the temple when the, the effects of sin are visible upon you, right? That doesn't necessarily make a person unholy. It doesn't make them morally unclean, but physically they are because their body is affected by sin, whether by themselves or just because they live in a broken world. And, and because God is holy and he wants his people to be holy, he distinguishes between those who are whole and healthy and morally holy and, and those who are affected by the signs of sin in the world. Now, Leviticus 13.40 is my favorite verse in all of Leviticus. Leviticus, Turn there with me, if you will. If a man's hair falls out from his head, he is bald. He is clean. So just take that for what it's worth. There is not uncleanness and baldness. All right, brothers? So, varied skin diseases. Also, cleanliness laws regarding household mold and mildew in Leviticus 14, verses 33 through 56. Interestingly enough, and and kind of humorously, uh, it's referred to as like leprosy of the house. Um, So it's a skin disease of the house. If there's mold or there's mildew on the house, right? It's just another sign of the effects of sin on the world. Mold grows and mold is not good. And so if there's mold or mildew in your house, you've got to call for the priest. He's got to come inspect it. And if if it cleans off and it doesn't come back, your house is clean. It's okay. You can go back to worship, so on and so forth. Leviticus chapter 15, there's cleanliness laws uh, relating to bodily discharges. I don't want to get crass or crude or gross, but because some bodily discharges are contagious, infectiously contagious, persons with them are considered unclean until they are healed of that infection. This, maybe more than any of the other cleanliness laws, does have something to do with hygiene. has something to do with not spreading disease in the camp of Israel. Think about it this way. If a person has an infectious disease, whether it's leprosy or some sort of bodily discharge, whatever it is, uh, and, and they remain among the camp of Israel, right? They know that infectious disease is, a, is a, a, a mark of the fall, the curse of man, the curse of sin upon our lives. Um, whether we did anything to incur this disease or not, um, the, the effects of st- sin are still upon us. If you remain in the camp and you pass that disease to somebody else, what have you done? You've passed the effects of sin onto another individual. And, and they onto another, and they onto another, and they onto another. And before you know it, the effects of sin are upon the whole camp of Israel. And now nobody can worship, right? So God creates and, and puts into place these cleanliness codes so that people will, will so, put it this way, so that the signs of sin can be mitigated even among his people. All of the cleanliness code is ritual. That is, an unclean person is not permanently defiled by their uncleanness, but because uncleanness is determined as evidence of sin and broken creation, no unclean person can worship in the tabernacle until he or she is declared clean. Why? Because God is holy, and he can have no association with sin, not even the presence of sin, not even the effects of sin. And as Israel is God's holy representative in the world, they display this separation even among themselves. 
Church, in Christ, the need for ritual cleanliness has been eliminated. His death cleanses perfectly the heart of every believer. So even if you get sick or you have some sort of disease or uh, really bad rash, um, you are not considered unclean because Christ in his atonement has paid perfectly for the sin of every person that is trusting in Christ. And as such, there is no differentiation between clean and unclean in Christ. We have that um, episode in Acts, right, where Peter has this vision of this blanket being dropped down from heaven. And on this blanket are all sorts of animals, both clean and unclean. There's, there's beef and there's pork on this blanket. And it's being lowered down from heaven. And a voice c- comes from heaven and says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, no, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean in my life. I won't do it. And, and it happens three times. Where God says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter protests. And the Lord says, what I have declared clean, do not call unclean. And then he sends, then, Peter to the Gentiles to proclaim the gospel to people who are not part of the people of God. People who are ritually and ceremonially unclean. Why? Because in Christ, all cleanness and uncleanness has been dealt with. And now the gospel is for all. God's holiness, God's, God's um, grace to us is now available to all people in Christ. So the clean and unclean laws have to do with the visible effects of sin. But then we see the sort of the, the heart effects of sin or how sin affects our hearts. And in chapters 18 through 22, we see God giving this moral code, a moral cleanliness code, a moral holiness code. And we see there that to be holy is to be different. It's to be different. Though God gives instruction and a means for Israel to have their sins atoned for, paid for, and forgiven, he still requires them to be holy. Being holy, we've said this is the third time now, right? Just reminding us that it means to be set apart, to be different. And we've already seen that in the cleanliness code, that they're to be different from among one another in a certain sense until they're healed, but also to be different from the world around them. So in, in chapters 18 through 22, we find the moral aspect of the law in Leviticus. And these are things that Israel must and must not do as God's chosen people. And there's a very specific reason as to why. Leviticus 18 Verses 26 through 30 say this, But you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all of these abominations so that the land became unclean. He's speaking of the land of Canaan that they will eventually go into and conquer will become the nation of Israel. Don't do these things lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among the people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord, your God. And so then he goes on from there to give them all of these restrictions and things that they're supposed to do and not supposed to do so that they will be different from the people in the land to which they are going. First, in Leviticus 18 and also in uh, chapter 20, God gives them instruction telling them to practice only holy and God-ordained sexual relations because God has created man and woman and because he's created marriage as a relationship, covenant relationship between one man and one woman, sexual relations are to be practiced within the bounds of a covenant relationship of marriage. In this way, the people of Israel are different than the polygamous and incestuous Canaanites that they will soon conquer. He then tells them in in chapter uh, 18, verse 21, and also in chapter 21, to not offer their children as sacrifices to pagan gods. God values life and children are a blessing. Don't kill them in worship of false gods, which the Canaanites were often doing. Third, 
Leviticus 19, 1 through 4, God says, honor your parents, honor the Sabbath, don't make idols. What do these remind you of? Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, right? A recapitulation of those. Leviticus 19, verses 9 through 18, God gives instruction to Israel to care generously for their neighbor. Look what he says in Leviticus uh, 19, verses 17 and 18. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Care generously for your neighbor. God also gives instruction to them to not harvest their fields or to, um, uh, to, to reap from their fields all the way to their property edges and not to pick up the things that fall on the ground along the way so that those people who are poor can come in and have something to glean for themselves. In Leviticus 19, 19 through 17, God gives instruction to walk in obedience to the Lord, in respect and in dignity with one another. Leviticus 19, 29 says, Do not profane your daughter by making her a prostitute, lest the land fall into prostitution and the land become full of depravity. Moms and dads, do we care so much about the souls of our children that we will not only protect them from falling into the practice of prostitution, but we will also protect them from the ravages of pornography and other things that, that, that would cry out to try to steal our children's sexual purity away? Do we care for our children that way? Leviticus 19.32, you shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man. Young men, young women, do we honor the elderly among us? Do we stand when they walk into a room? Do we thank them for their long lives of faithfulness and obedience to the Lord and the example that they've given? Leviticus 19.33 and 34, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do to him wrong. He shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as a native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Christian, this ought to, this ought to specifically speak to how we address the issue of immigration in this nation. Not, not, not as, now I get that there are laws, and laws are there for a reason. But there are people who are broken and hurting and looking for liberty in any sense possible that will leave a country and come illegally to another one for the chance at something, even though it's wrong. It's not up to us to turn them into the authorities necessarily. It's not up to us to judge them for their criminality or not. It is up to us to care for them. To care for them. I know that's hard, and we're, we're in an age and an era right now of political rhetoric that, it, that has reached such a height that it is dividing churches and dividing believers and dividing people as to what we do with those who are hurting that have come to our shores. Now, I'm not advocating that we don't have immigration laws. I think we should, and I think we should do our due diligence in, in how we do that. But we also need to understand as Christians, right? We are called to be ambassadors for Christ, ministers of reconciliation. And when someone is broken and hurting before you, whether they are before you by means of legal immigration or illegal immigration, your first obligation to them is as a fellow human being created in the image of God who needs to know Christ who has died to save them. Your first obligation is not to call the police and, 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 uh, and ICE and customs and all that and turn them in. Your first obligation is to care for them as a fellow image bearer of the Lord. And I know this is going to rub some people the wrong way, but I said it. There it is. We're called to love, called to care, even as Israel was. 
Then we see in Leviticus chapters 26, verses 1 through 13, a reward for holiness. When the people of Israel walk in holiness, there's a reward. Here's the reward. God says, I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you, right? A fulfillment of the promise of Genesis 1:28. I will confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat old store, long kept. You shall clear out the old to make way for the new. I will make my dwelling place among you and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. What a reward for walking in holiness, for God to dwell among us and for us to be called his people. But there's also the option of disobedience. And if the people disobey, there's, there are curses for disobedience. And these we see in the rest of Leviticus chapter 26. And there's sort of a five stages of curses for disobedience. If the people are disobedient, they don't repent. In Leviticus 26, 14 through 17, we see that they'll be visited by disease and servitude to other nations. If they continue to walk in their unrepentance, they'll be humiliated at the hands of other nations. Leviticus 26, 21 through 22, if they continue to walk in repentance, in unrepentance, even then they'll be victims of wild beasts that will eat their children. 26, 23 through 26, the fourth stage, if they continue to walk in unrepentance, after their children have all been eaten by wild beasts, they'll be visited by sword and pestilence. And then after that, in verses 27 through 39, if they still won't repent, exile. They'll be taken into captivity by another nation who does not fear the Lord as God uses a pagan nation as his means of judgment and punishment upon his unrepentant people, Israel. And what happens in the Old Testament? Where do they end up? Exile. What does that mean? They would not walk in obedience and repentance to the Lord. So much so that they were visited by all five stages of the curse for disobedience. In all of this, the call to holiness, call to to moral uh, rectitude, we see that the Lord values life. He gives life. He values it. He wants us to treat it with respect and with dignity. And the Lord also values holiness. He wants his people to be holy, to be morally right, to be distinct from the sinful people of the world, that they might, through being holy, bless the rest of the world. We also see that God abhors sin and disobedience. He does not like it, cannot stand it, will not tolerate it. Sixth and finally, we see in Leviticus that holy people get to celebrate their holy God. Holy people get to celebrate. Holiness is not dull. This is in Leviticus 23 through 25. Holiness is not dull. Holiness is not boring. Holiness is not sad. It's not a bad thing to be called to be holy. Instead, it's a thing that we ought to be jubilant about. And so throughout their year, God gives these special feasts and times of, uh, of celebration that he commands them to do, to remember and to regularly celebrate God's gracious uh, choosing of them as a people. And they do this uh, in in all sorts of ways throughout the year. But there are two that I want to hit on just briefly. The first, Leviticus chapter 23, verses 4 through 8, the Passover. We looked at Passover a little bit more intently as we studied Exodus, right? That was the the tenth of the of the plagues that hit Egypt when God sent the angel of death over Egypt, killed the firstborn uh, of every house that didn't have the, the blood of a lamb smeared on its doorposts. Every year there to remember that day that God visited death upon the Egyptians and spared the Israelites by his grace. They get to celebrate that every single year. Then also, every 50 years, in Leviticus 25, 8 through 22, we see instructions for celebrating the year of Jubilee. Every 50 years... Any land, on the 50th year, any land that previously was bought or sold would return to its original owner so that all lands would remain within the the tribal boundaries. After 50 years, all or on the 50th year, all indentured servants were forgiven their debts. 
In that year, no one would sow any crops, no one would reap any crops. It was a year of liberty and a year of rest that both looks back at their liberty from Egypt and looks forward to eternal liberty ultimately in Christ and the Messiah. The year of Jubilee was an amazing year in the life of of Israel. If you're an indentured servant on the 50th year, you don't have to work as a servant anymore. You go free. Even if you sold yourself as an indentured servant to pay off a debt that was insurmountable like three days before the new year, okay? You would be, you would be freed of it, you know, on the day of Jubilee. In all of this, and as you read through the various feasts and the times of celebration, all that, just know this. Holiness and liberation from sin should and ought to be celebrated. We should celebrate. And in a moment tonight, we're going to celebrate our Holiness and liberation from sin as we take the Lord's Supper in a few moments. Now, what about, what about this as we, as we close out our study of Leviticus? Where do we see Christ in Leviticus? As we know that all of, all of Scripture in the Old Testament is leading to Christ, all of Scripture in the New Testament points back to Christ. Where do we see Christ in Leviticus? Where is he on display? First, Jesus is the true and sinless Israel. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. God gave instructions to Moses and Aaron to tell Pharaoh, let my people Israel, my firstborn son, let them go so that they may serve me. Then in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, this is what God's word says. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Jesus is the perfect son of God. He is the perfect fulfillment of the people of Israel. He is the promised seed to the woman uh, in Genesis chapter 3. He's the serpent crusher who lived a sinless life. He did what the people Israel could never do, and yet he was one of them. Jesus is the true and sinless Israel. Secondly, Jesus is the greater high priest. We saw in Leviticus the need for a priest, the need for a mediator, someone to speak to the people for God and to God for the people. Jesus is the better high priest. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16 Since we then have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Again, pointing to him being the perfect sinless Israel. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 7. There's a reason we're spending a lot of time in Hebrews because the author of Hebrews is speaking to the Israelites, to Hebrew people, about Christ being the fulfillment of everything they hoped for in the Old Testament. Hebrews 8, 1 through 7. Now, the point and what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not men, For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Catch that? The tabernacle, the priest, the service that happens in the tabernacle, in the temple, is all just a shadow of heavenly things. Okay? 
For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. We saw that in Exodus. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent as the old, uh, as, excuse me, that is as much more excellent as the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Jesus is the greater high priest, the better mediator, the perfect mediator between God and man. He is fully man, yes, but he's also fully God. And as such, he can go perfectly between the two to serve as a mediator between the two. And not only is he the greater high priest, but finally, he is the final and perfect substitute for sin. We saw in Leviticus the day in, day out, weekly, yearly sacrifice of animals for the sins of the people, the sacrificing that never stopped, the blood that never quit pouring in the tabernacle. But in Christ, the need for sacrifice uh, is completed. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14. If you've never spent time in Hebrews 9 and in Leviticus, I encourage you to do that. Bounce back and forth, okay, between the two and see the parallels that are going on there. Hebrews 9, 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not a tent made with hands, that is, not of this creation, speaking of the tabernacle and temple, but he entered once for all into the holy places, not by a means of the blood of goats and calves, those that were offered on the day of atonement, but he's entered in the most holy of places by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption, not a temporary redemption at the uh, at the death of a bull or a goat, but an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Jesus is the final sacrifice, the one who stands in our place on the cross, even as that bull or that goat or that lamb would for the sinful person in Israel. He receives the payment for our sins. He dies in our place. His blood is shed and poured out on the altar in the presence of God for our purification. And tonight we get to celebrate that. Tonight we have bread and the cup resemble and remind us of Christ's body, which is given, broken for us, his physical body. He was truly human like one of us. Not not a lesser part of creation, but a greater, right? So he, he is a man like we are, and yet he is fully God. He is better than we are, and his body was broken for us. And the cup, which represents his blood, blood that was spilled for the washing away of our sins. And so as we take this, we should have in our minds Leviticus just all over the place, but perfectly and finally fulfilled. Praise God, we don't have to bring bulls and goats to be, to be sacrificed before us. Praise God that, that we can be saved and redeemed, have our sins atoned for, simply by placing faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, for our salvation. That is worth celebrating, is it not? That is worth rejoicing in. And we're going to do that tonight.